Faith Memorial Church was founded in 1945 as Cleveland Evangelistic Center. A lot has changed since then, but one thing hasn't. Faith Memorial Church's passion for Christ and compassion for the people of our community. Bless God. Well, I've got one thing to say, church. One thing. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's going to take me an hour and a half, two hours to say it, but I've got one thing to say. No, seriously, I've got one thing to say, church. One thing. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas, right? Right? Are you, wait, am I a month, uh, am I a little early, a little late? You know? We've heard of Christmas in July, but now we're just getting kookier and kookier. Uh, if, you, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 2. And here's the reason why. The reason, here's the joke and the real reason I'm wearing a Christmas sweater and Christmas socks. Because this is Charles Spurgeon. This is my hero. And he's got the Santa hat on. It says, this is my jolly face. But on my socks, I've got my other hero, Bugs Bunny. And he's in a Santa Claus outfit too. <laughs> the reason that I'm wearing this wonderfully fashionable attire <laughs> is because we're doing this series I know nothing and we're talking about the the life and the ministry of Christ and and we've done before creation in eternity past and then we did creation and then we did the prophets and the messianic prophecies concerning his coming well now we're at advent and the incarnation of jesus and i thought well we something must be off because people only preach the birth of jesus at christmas so i might as well wear a christmas outfit because it must be christmas if we're going to preach on the birth of jesus <laughs> you know how big of a shame that is in the church it's a crying shame i mean it really is listen think back when have you ever heard someone preach on the birth of Jesus and it wasn't during December? <laughs> That's what they say. That wasn't his birthday anyway. But think, think about this. Apart from the occasional kook that will preach Christmas in July or you know the occasional connecting the birth of Christ to Passover and preaching it in March or April around Easter, Apart from that, you never hear the birth of Jesus preached. You just don't. We've relegated it so much to a cliche that we just don't even talk about it. Because it's like we know everything that there is to know about that, right? Huh. We, uh, I got to tell you, my daughter is the one that challenged me on this. My daughter. So l listen, I got to take a moment, praise break. I got to praise the Lord and I got to brag on my wife, okay? And she gets embarrassed. Watch her turn three shades of red onto a magenta color. But, <laughs> no, seriously, my kids love the Bible. They love the Word of God. And they know it pretty well at their age. But my son, if you talk to him, his favorite book of the Bible is Revelation. I mean, he just, everything about Revelation, he's on point. Let's go. My daughter doesn't really have a favorite book of the Bible. She does like the book of Esther because she hates Haman. Goodness gracious alive, she hates Haman. But, I mean, if anybody does anything bad, she's like, that must be Haman's brother. <laughs> I'm like, I, we, we messaged her old, um, her old Sunday school teacher, and we were like, 
what did you do when you taught the story of Esther? Because Haman is like, Satan's right here and Haman is like right here. You know, like they're, they're second cousins twice removed. But, but she does have a favorite story in the Bible. And her favorite story in the Bible by far is the story of Advent, the birth of Jesus Christ. I mean, she loves it. And what's so amazing is anytime she gets to read it or watch an episode on Minnow TV, like a little uh, Christian um, cartoon or story, and they go to the birth of Jesus, you can just watch her light up. Her eyes get big. She just smiles and grins from ear to ear anytime she begins to hear the story of Jesus. And I'm like, that's a challenge to me. Like, that is a stark challenge to me. Because I'm going to be honest, I've been preaching for a long time now. And I've been a pastor for quite a while. And I don't ever preach Advent messages. Or like coincide it with the holiday for any holiday. I just don't. With the exception of Easter, I preach the resurrection on on uh, Resurrection Sunday. But with the exception of that, I don't usually preach holiday messages on the corresponding holiday. But I was thinking about it, and I was like, when's the last time that I preached the birth of Jesus? Because I fall into that same category, too, where you just take it for granted. Like, that's a cool story. The thing that frustrates me about it so much is that when people preach it, they almost always butcher it. Like, have you ever heard somebody preach a good message on the advent of Jesus and it was actually like a good sermon or a good message? Most of the time it's like, we're going to preach it and we're going to be kind of like bored to tears that we're preaching it or that we have to to get through our Advent series and our liturgical calendar, or we're going to try to be so novel and so inventive and so creative that we don't even preach the main thing. We just kind of like preach all these, well, this means this and this means this. And it's like, what story are you even preaching right now? Come, Am I the only one that feels this way? I hate going to a church and when the preacher starts preaching on the birth of Jesus and they just butcher it. Maybe y'all have listened to a lot better preachers than I have, but I... I have listened to some doozies. (laughs) I feel like Gomer Pyle in that episode of Andy Griffith where it's like the dude's preaching and he's like, I'm, I'm getting in trouble. But seriously, why is that? Why is that? You know, my favorite holiday without a doubt is Thanksgiving. Like it doesn't even come close. You get all these people coming together and they're bringing food and you can eat as much as you want and nobody judges you. <laughs> like the, and you get to watch the Detroit Lions lose a football game. Like there is no better holiday than that. <laughs> there isn't. And the great thing is, is it's not just breakfast, lunch, and then supper or dinner. You get to eat like a, a dinner, a lunch dinner, and then you get to go back for not seconds, like third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. And nobody ever says, why are you eating another plate of food? No, they're like, hey, we don't want to take leftovers home. Why don't you go get another plate? And I'm like, oh, okay, because you're twisting my arm. Like, come on, Thanksgiving's an amazing holiday. Y'all aren't being very interactive. Like, joke with me a little bit. Listen, never mind, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to back. <laughs> but Thanksgiving is the best holiday. But it's also the best because it starts the Christmas season. Think about this. 
The Christmas season is the best season of the year. Uh, and if you don't believe it, you're wrong. Because it is, it is the best season of the year. And you want to know why it's the best season of the year? Because no matter who they are, no matter where they're at, and no matter what they believe, it's the one time of year where everybody acknowledges the existence of God. Even if they don't believe it and they deny it, they try to change the name. We're going to call it Xmas or Happy Holidays. And we're going to play secular Christmas music in our stores. Yeah, but you're still playing music that originates and ties itself back to the coming of my God. So even though you try to deny it, even though you try to pervert it, distort it, twist it, change it, rename it, whatever, you're still acknowledging my God game. <laughs> That's the best season of the year. I love it. You turn on the radio, Christmas songs. You turn on TV, Christmas commercials, Christmas movies, Christmas shows, even though they're worthless and not worth watching, they're still acknowledging the coming of Christ. They, yeah, I will. I'll tell you how I really feel. I ain't ashamed. But, but they are. It, everybody acknowledges this event. They acknowledge this event. And we have just kind of like, in Christianity, we've kind of like relegated it off to cliche or something that we know everything there is to know about it. I was thinking about... I was so psyched up. I have been waiting to wear this ugly Christmas shirt for weeks. I was so psyched up. I started reading A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens this past week. I was like, let's go. Let's go. And I was reading it, and there was a passage in there, and it just absolutely floored me. But you guys know A Christmas Carol? Even if you don't know the name of the story, you know Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Bah, humbug. Like, everybody knows Scrooge. All right. Scrooge McDuck. That's the best that's the best one. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but his nephew his nephew Fred at the very beginning of the story, his nephew Fred comes in. And this is before he meets his old dead partner Marley, you know, cuz that's how the book begins. Marley was dead, there's no doubt about that. Like anyway, before he ever sees the ghost of Marley, before Ghost of Christmas Past, Present, Future, before any of that. His nephew comes in and says, Merry Christmas. And Scrooge and his nephew Fred get into this argument about the good of Christmas. And he's like, you're poor. What good has Christmas ever done you? And then Fred like wears him out and goes into this like soliloquy about how good Christmas has been. But there's a statement in there and he says this. He says, apart from the veneration due to its holy name and origin... Whether or not anything about it can be separate from that. That's a big fancy statement by Dickens. But what he's saying is nothing about Christmas can be separated or distinguished between the fact that it's named after Christ and between the fact that it is originating in His advent. Meaning that no matter how you tie it to money, no matter how you commercialize it, you try to ruin it, it all is tied back to the fact that Christ came. Christmas is the event of, of our existence, of time. Christmas is the event. And I know people would say, no, it's the cross, or no, it's the resurrection. The cross and the resurrection are impossible without the incarnation. The incarnation, I, do you guys think I'm a nerd? <laughs> I, I, I am. One of the things, and I, I wrote a blog about it a while back, but I, I really like words. I like the etymology of words, like how they're formed and how they're built. I know that's, that's a minor, minor thing, but I really like words. 
<laughs> I, I do. I'm a, I'm a word nerd. I really like words. But I was trying to think of a word that could communicate enough pathos, enough feeling with what Christmas actually represents. I was trying to communicate that. And what I began to find out is there isn't a word big enough. See, if a major disaster happens that changes like the earthquakes in Haiti and, you know, the fires or the hurricane like Hurricane Katrina, when it decimates a whole society and it changes the way that they live and operate for the future of that civilization, that society, you think about like Pompeii and the volcano and all that, like it changes the way that they live. They would call it a cataclysmic event. A cataclysmic event. Cata means downward and clysmic means washing. It's a downward washing catastrophe that changes everything. But it has a negative connotation. But there is no word that's the antonym of that, meaning an event of that magnitude and that power on the good spectrum. And I was like, why not? Are we that negative of a people that we can describe bad things with that much weight and emphasis, but we can't describe good things that way. So I made a word. <laughs> you know, if there's not one, you just make one. So there's a prefix. <laughs> That's right, you just make one. So there's a prefix, E-U, you, and it means good or blessed. You know the word for the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, charis means grace, and you means blessed or good, so it's blessed grace. That's the w- word we use for the Lord's Supper. So the prefix you, I just shove it on the beginning of cataclysmic. So you have the you cataclysmic event, the blessed downward washing, the event that happened that changed everything. You have God, the infinite creator of the universe, take on flesh and be born of a virgin. That's an, a major event. That is an event that changed everything. And the reason I say the event as it's the only one is because how do you measure time? How do you measure time? You say, B.C., the coming of Jesus, B.C., A.D., B.C., before Christ, A.D. Who knows what A.D. stands for? Anno Domini. After death, that's all everybody said. But what about the 33 years in between before Christ and after death? Anno Domini. Anno means year. Domini means Lord or God. In the year of our Lord is what it means. So you have before Christ and then you have everything after the incarnation. That singular event. You know what cracks me up about liberals and secular historians? They're like, we don't want that, so we're going to change it. So we're going to call it BCE and CE. Before common era and common era. And I'm like, that's fantastic. What's the event that happens that measures when it's before common era and common era? So you can change the names, but you can't change the event. The way that everything is measured, the litmus test, the scale that defines what history is, is the birth and the coming of Christ. It is the eucataclysmic event of all time. And we relegate it to a cliché. We do. I've done it. Let's read some scripture. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus 
that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And they were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field and keeping watch over the flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good will toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Praise God. Praise God. Can I tell you guys something? I'm, I'm going to get into the text in just a second, I promise. But I, wa- I wanted to tell you guys something. You know, when we were talking about Christmas, several of you guys mentioned, you know, Christmas isn't, Jesus wasn't born in December. And you might be right. But there has been a tradition that has existed in the church for way too long. And I hate it. And I've heard people preach about it. But people will say that there was a, a Greek and then a Roman holiday, Saturnalia, the festival of Saturnalia. And that it was in December from the 17th and it lasted 7 to 10 days. And it was what was going on. And the Catholic Church said, we can't have this. We need to have a Christian festival. And we need to have our Christian festival be in place of that. Can I tell you something? That's not true. Saturnalia came after Christmas. I'm serious. Look at the dates. Saturnalia came after Christmas. It existed as a Greek festival, but the Romans didn't start celebrating it until the 4th, 5th century, and Christmas was already being celebrated in December. Do you want to know where Christmas comes from, its actual origins, and why it's December 25th? Because the early church fathers believed this. They believed that Jesus Christ died on March 25th, and that he was conceived on the same day that he died. That's what the early church fathers believed. They believed that Jesus Christ died on March 25th, and he was conceived on the same day that he died, March 25th. And so they walked nine months from March 25th to December 25th and said, this must be when he was born. I'm not saying that that's the truth. I'm saying that that's where the origin of the celebration of Christmas comes from. It comes from a church tradition of Jesus being conceived around Passover the same time he died. Anyway, 
that's just food for thought. You don't even have to agree with that. But that's where the origin of Christmas comes from. But now I want to talk about Christmas itself and what's going on. My wife and I were talking about some cool things yesterday because we do that occasionally. You know, we sit down and talk about cool things. (laughs) If you don't talk to your, your spouse, you're missing out. But we were sitting down and we were talking about purpose. And we were talking about being where God wants you to be in the moment. And here's the thing. As I was preparing for this message this week, the thing that kind of kind of got me was Mary was a devout, Christ, uh, devout Jewish girl. God didn't pick a harlot. He picked a Jewish girl, a virgin that was devout. And you can tell from one chapter previous in Luke that she knew the Scripture pretty well. I mean, the Magnificat, she knew the Scriptures. And the angel says, you're going to give birth to Jesus. And he communicates to her enough so she realizes she's giving birth to the Messiah. And Joseph has his dream and you have all of this, right? If she knew the Scriptures that well, don't you think there's a good possibility she knew the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem, the city of David? There's a good possibility she knew that. But guess what she wasn't doing? She didn't force her way to Bethlehem. She didn't force her way to where she felt like or may have thought she was supposed to be. See, we have a big problem in church and in ministry where people want to help God out. We want to help Him out. We think, okay, God, you have given me this word, and I'm supposed to do X, Y, Z. Well, you haven't moved yet, so you must need a little bit of help from me. So I'm going to try and and make this as easy as possible on you, Lord. You may have forgotten, like you spoke to me, and I've been over here. I thought this, I worked at Lazy Boy, and I hated it. I knew what I was called to do, but I was working there to try to support my, my young family, and I hated it. And so there were oftentimes like, I was like, hey God, have you kind of forgotten about me? You've forgotten where you left me? Like you called me to do this, like do I need to like get a neon sign and start waving my hands like, God, I'm, I'm right here. Because that's what we do sometimes, isn't it? You ever felt like you got a word from God and he forgot where you're at? Be honest, come on. I mean, God, let's, let's be real about how God works. Sometimes it seems like it takes a whole long time between the promise and the fulfillment. And then he starts fulfilling things and it's like, hang on to your pants because he's moving. <laughs> I guess the way it is, like hurry up and wait. And then when you get there, it's like, oh my goodness, I can't keep up. You're know, like, I'm trying to get my shoes on and I'm missing the bus. Anyway, that's, that's the way, in my limited experience, that's the way it feels like God works. And so sometimes we kind of try to help him out. Like I... Lord, I'm supposed to be in, back in Tennessee. What do you think would have happened if I'd have just moved? Like, okay, God, I feel like I'm going to be going back to Tennessee at some point in the future. Um, why don't I just move? I'll help you out, Lord. I'll just move. <laughs> I missed it completely. I missed it completely. Because God doesn't need your help. And Mary, even though she probably knew if she was given birth to the Messiah, she needed to be in Bethlehem. 
And she's probably sitting there like, God, <laughs> it's getting pretty close to time. I mean, I've already went to the ping waddle shuffle kind of walk. Like, <laughs> it's getting pretty close to time. It says the days were accomplished. Like, <laughs> Come on, every woman that's ever been pregnant, if she goes full term, is like, dear God, get this over with. <laughs> get this thing out of me. I've talked to enough pregnant women. I know that that's the truth. <laughs> I know that that's the truth. But she's, so she's probably over here like, Lord, where are you at? I'm supposed to be over here, and the time's about run out, and I'm not in the right spot. And guess what God does? God moves an empire and the entire known world he moves the entire known world to get a girl a few miles. Think about that. God moves heaven and earth to get a girl a few miles. Is that not mind-blowing? Listen, if Christmas is about anything, it's about the sovereignty of God. It's about the sovereignty of God. You know, I shared with you guys, we've been doing the, the series on Revelation on Wednesdays. I shared with you guys the purpose of Revelation. What's the purpose of Revelation? To reveal Jesus. What about this? What's the purpose of prophecy? I'll give you a hint. I answered the question before I asked it. <laughs> the purpose of prophecy is to demonstrate the sovereignty of God. Serious. God can give a prophecy and say expressly what He's going to do. Give the enemy or Satan and the kingdom of darkness hundreds if not thousands of years to try and stop it. And then say, hey, guess what? You couldn't do a daggum thing about it. Listen, sometimes, sometimes I think God does the whole little brush the dirt off your shoulder kind of thing. <laughs> like, he's God and he doesn't share his glory with anyone. And he says in Isaiah, he says, Behold, here's a sign for you. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And guess what? Here's a virgin that's pregnant. <laughs> and Satan can't stop it. What about this one? Unto you is a sign given. Unto you a child is born. Unto you a son is given. And his name, or the government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Can't stop it. I feel like MC Hammer. Can't touch this. No, no, no. Can't stop him. Can't stop him. Isaiah 55 says this it says, Shall not my word accomplish the purpose for which I give it? It will not return unto me void but it will do the thing that I sent it forth to do. Prophecy is a demonstration of the sovereignty of God. And here God, He has a woman, a young girl, and He moves the entire world to get her a few miles to fulfill His prophetic word. And you know what I think is so funny about this? This is the only time tax has ever accomplished anything good, right? <laughs> I could not say that. <laughs> this is the only, don't ever say taxes never did any good because, but I, no, seriously, if I, I think of taxes, 
as being pretty much straight out of the pit. And when I say the pit, I'm talking about the pit of hell. I think taxes are pretty much straight out of the pit of hell. I hate them. I, I think they have purpose, whatever, but I, I hate them. I hate paying them more than anything, but I hate taxes. But here, here's the thing. Even if they were straight out of the pit, that makes it even better. It makes it even better. Even if Augustus and his whole plan to tax the empire was straight from Satan's mouth, that just makes the story even better. Because now God didn't just move an entire kingdom and the entire known world to get a girl a few miles. Now he let Satan do it for him. I mean, Satan used Joseph's brothers to throw him in to get trying to subvert the whole plan of God, and that was exactly what God used to get him to be second over all of Egypt and to save his people. <laughs> it's like what the enemy meant for good, God worked out, or what the enemy meant for evil, God worked out for our good. Man, that just makes the story so much better. Satan moved on the heart of an emperor and said, you know what? He's probably sitting there with his little demons and a little council, and he says, you know, we've been hearing about these messianic prophecies for, you know, two, two and a half thousand years. I mean, if you're talking about the Proto-Evangelium and the very first messianic prophecy, even longer than that, almost 4,000 years, we've been hearing about prophecies about the coming of Christ. Um, it, it's got to be getting close to its fulfillment now. And... If it's getting close to its fulfillment, they're probably somewhere near Bethlehem because that's where the prophets have said he was going to be born. I've got an idea. Listen, you demon, you demon, and you, we're going to go whisper in Augustus's ear and we're going to tell him to do this plan of taxes and we want to move everybody to go to the city of their origin because even if God has his person there in Bethlehem about ready to have this baby, we're going to move them out of Bethlehem. You see, you, you see the, the humor in that? If Satan is moving on Augustus trying to shake everything up to keep God's word from coming to pass, he uses his shaking up to make it fall right into place. That's how sovereign God is. Man, that is so good. That is so good. Talk about sovereignty for a second because I've, I've already been harping on this. This isn't really part of the message, but I have to share. You have the infinite creator. There's nothing above him. Have you ever, have you ever done something wrong and then used the expression, I kind of, I, I feel like it's hanging over my head. You know what I'm talking about? Like you, you, like I, I don't know if I did something wrong, but I don't want to have this guilt just hanging over over me. You know what I'm talking about? You ever use that? So C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. He wrote this book called The Abolition of Man. And in the book, he talks about the universal standard for good. And he calls it the Tao because he's not trying to make it over-Christianize. He just calls it the Tao like, for the sake of conversation. And he says... It's the standard of conduct that is universally accepted. Like, almost everybody would say, Holocaust, bad, okay? Like, almost everybody would say, you know, genocide, not good. There are the exceptions, but they're the exception, not the standard. The standard is most people 
operate on a similar plane of morality. But it's over us. You know, you know what I mean? It's like it, if you do something, you have the guilt hanging down on you because the standard is above you, not beneath you. It's objective. It's not subjective to your whims. God doesn't have that. God doesn't have this standard that's above him that you know, forces him to do right and wrong, one thing or the other. He is the standard. It exists in him. There is no standard that says, God, you have to do this. Because if there was, if something was above God, guess what? It would be God. No, he is in of himself. He is the determining factor for what is good and what is not, what is holy and what is not. It is in God. And here's what fascinates me, and the reason I'm bringing this up, is because there was no standard that forced God to send His Son to redeem the world. There was no, nothing that forced God. He didn't have to. He could have annihilated mankind and started over. But He didn't. It was the overflow of His love and His mercy and His compassion and His desire for His people that compelled him and constrained him to take on flesh and be born of a virgin, to create the perfect atoning sacrifice. Is that not good? He wasn't forced. He didn't have to. He's sovereign. He could have done this however he wanted to do it. But the only way that he could remain perfectly just and perfectly merciful is to have a substitution. That's what we're celebrating. That's what the incarnation is. And I say that's what we're celebrating like it's Christmas time. Question, you know, is it Christmas or Merry Christmas? It's all Christmas. It isn't just the month of December. Everything that's happened since the incarnation has been extenuation of the Christmas season. That's why we can watch Home Alone in the middle of June. And nobody can judge me. <laughs> it's always Christmas. <sighs> Oh, gosh. That's funny. I don't care who you are. <laughs> but you have, you have God sitting upon the throne. You know what I love? He comes to be born of a virgin, and there's no room for him. So he goes from the throne to the manger, which is a feeding trough. So he goes from the throne to the trough. And it's a perfect symbol that he's headed for the table. You guys didn't get that. The table, the Lord's Supper, the table that we partake of to celebrate our salvation. That's where he's headed. But he goes there by way of the trough. From the throne to the trough to the table. Think about the trough. I don't know why, but I picture a pig trough. I do. I picture a pig trough. I know that this isn't probably, it probably wasn't a pig trough. It's probably for cattle and it was pretty and they had donkeys and stuff. And they expected the coming, so they decorated. You know. it's <laughs> but I picture a pig trough. And the reason I do is because it's, it's filled with waste and refuse and things that people haven't eaten. It's garbage. He went from the highest height to the lowest low. Man, if that isn't a good picture for you. We forget that this is God. I mean, I, I can't even wrap my mind around this. 
the incomprehensibly infinite God reduced himself. That's the phenomenal language. Don't attack my theology. To a span and was born as a man. That is absolutely astounding. From the throne to the trough to the table. And along the way there was no room for him. I I was uh, reading a church, they had uh, their mission statement, and I was like reading this church's mission statement, and they weren't using this story, and they missed out on a good opportunity. But their mission statement was making room for Jesus. And I'm like, why did you not connect that to the Christmas? They probably didn't want to be weirdos like me. But, (laughs) But how could you not connect that to the Advent? Make room for Jesus. And it it fits so well because in our lives, we're like, okay, I've got to work because I've got to make a living. So so I've got this. I've got to have room for that. And, you know, I've got to... I've got to pay my bills and, you know, I've got to spend some time with my spouse and my kids and, you know, those little mini-me's. I've got to make sure that they're taken care of and I've got to eat, so that means I've got to cook, so that means I've got to buy groceries, so that means I've got a meal plan. And it's like, oh, and all these responsibilities, now I've got to kind of, um, I've got to do something for me. You know, I've got to do something to decompress, something to take the load off, so I've got to make sure I've got time for that. And I don't want to stink, so I've got to do some hygiene stuff. And before you know it, there's no room left in your schedule. Have you ever been there? It's like, I don't have, there's not enough time in the day. That's the ugliest, oldest statement. Like, there's not enough time in the day. <laughs> you know, the good thing about time is it makes you prioritize. And money reveals what's in your heart, so does your schedule. Your schedule reveals what's in your heart, too, because you're going to make time for what's important to you. But, you know, God doesn't ask you to block out a section of time for him. Everybody's like, well, he doesn't. What God wants, what he truly wants, is not for you to block out a section of time for him or so you can get something from him or so that you can do something over him or under him or any of that. He wants you to invite him into your life so that you can do all the things that you have to do with him. And that flips everything about religion and legalism up on its head. God wants to do life together with you. That's why we have the word koinonia, life, partaking in the life of God. That's why, I don't know if you guys have gotten emails from me, but a lot of times I'll sign off on emails, quorum deo, which is Latin phrase meaning before the face of God. It's like because we should be doing life before the face of God. That's how we should operate and how we should live. It's not about just making room for him. It's about everything being in his room. Are we okay? I know this is kind of like bing, 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 bing. But here's the, here's the flow. The flow is just saying, what's, what's, what's so important about the incarnation? That's why all these questions, all these things that I'm saying, they're, answer, they're responding to that question. What's the big deal about the incarnation? Everything. It is the big deal. So, you know, I'm just asking myself questions. And when I prepare to preach, this is what I do. I just open the text and I say, okay, God, what about this? What about this? Why this? What this? Just ask God questions and wait and see what he answers. And one of the questions I ask is, why shepherds? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why shepherds? 
I think there's a couple reasons. There's probably like 5,000, but I've got two. Okay, <laughs> I'm not going to be here till next Thursday. I've got two. Two reasons that I believe for shepherds. The first one is pretty simple. Notice they're outside the city. They're not in the, in the throng, in the throw of things. Shepherds weren't very popular. I mean, now we say, we treat them like, you know, God, the Lord is my shepherd. Now we're like, wow. But it wasn't a very prestigious career. It wasn't. It was kind of gross. <laughs> wasn't, you know, it wasn't like you were rolling in the Benjamins because you were a shepherd. You know, <laughs> you didn't wear the best clothes. You didn't smell the greatest. You know, you didn't get invited to the fancy parties. You weren't sitting in the king's court. You know, it wasn't the most prestigious job. Kind of actually one of the lowest jobs. You know, if because we're so negative of people, because we are, we're negative. Like, we talk about they're an eternal optimist, they're a pessimist, they're a realist. The truth is, is all humanity is pessimist in the grand scheme of things because we have this propensity to look at everything through a lens of our fallenness. Even the most optimistic, optimistic person on the planet in the grand scheme of things is a pessimist because they don't see God in everything. If this story would have been written, and the angel would have appeared to the Pharisees and to the religious elite, I already know what we would have done. We would have said, the angel appeared to the religious elite and the wise men followed the star, so you've got super intellectual and super religious, and they're the only ones that are allowed to come. That's exactly what we would have done. We would have. We would have figured out a way to theologize, I don't know, we would have figured out a way to systematize a theology and a doctrine on the fact that only the religious elite and the super intellectual could come. But in the angel appearing specifically to the outcasts of society, to the poverty stricken, to those that are not even welcome in the city, we don't have that option. And when the angel appears to the shepherd, guess what he says? Guess what he says? I love it. He says, glory to God in the highest and good news for all men. Not for the religious elite and not for the intellectual supreme, uh, supremacy of society. Not for the elect. For all people. All people. Which means that everybody gets an invite no matter where they're at in life. This, this change, it changes everything. It changes everything. God came. Listen, I always use this when I'm trying to explain to somebody that doesn't understand the difference between Christianity and other religions. I always use the parable of the mountain or the figure of the mountain. In fact, it's in my new book, which will be published tomorrow. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Uh, seriously, you got the mountain and you got God. Or if they're a scientist or somebody that thinks that they no longer need the God hypothesis, you've got the first truth or the reality behind existence sitting at the peak of the mountain. And you have got everybody and their mother's brother trying to climb this mountain 
to get to God or the first truth or the foundation of reality, whatever. And they may, some of them try some pretty logical reasons and they get up pretty far and get pretty close. Some of them are more fanatical and they're over here dancing, not even, you know, whatever. And then you have Christians. And Christians are this group of people down here at the base somewhere where God said, you know what? I'm going to come off the mountain and down into the valley and I'm going to reveal myself to save you the effort of trying to climb a mountain you could never reach the top of anyway. That's the difference. So when Christians leave the revelation and then try climbing the mountain, that's where we get into legalism and religion and people ruin it all together. That's what God, in the incarnation, He descended off the mountain to reveal and to make Himself known. That's why Jesus tells Philip, have you been with me so long and have not seen or known the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He and I are one. Jesus is the fullness of revelation. And I hate it when I talk to people that study the Word and they're like, they're always looking for that and, you know? Like they always want that new revelation or that new theological discovery because they want something novel or they want something noteworthy or they want something that nobody else has come before. And I'm like, don't you understand that nothing goes deeper than the foundations? That if you really want something that's worth having, something substantial, His name is Jesus. So that's the first reason I believe that it was the shepherds is because it was God showing that this is for everybody. Not just for a few frozen chosen. Not just for a few intellectual hoop-de-hoops. I don't know what a good word for that is. And not just for the religious elite. No, this is for everybody. The smartest to the dumbest. The fattest to the skinniest. The richest to the poorest. The oldest to the youngest. This is for everybody. Makes no difference. Makes no difference. The second reason I believe he came to the shepherds is this. The shepherds were in the field with their flock by night. They were in an inconvenient place at an inconvenient time. And you know what? They didn't have a cheerleading squad over at the side saying, give me an S, S, give me an H, H, give me an E, P, H, E, R, D. Like, what's that spell? Shepherds, woo! There wasn't a whole lot of recognition. They didn't have a cheerleading section. They didn't have a hype section. They didn't have a fan, you know, section. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't have that. There wasn't a whole lot of recognition in doing what they were doing. Inconvenient place, inconvenient time, lack of recognition, lack of reward, Inconvenient truth, there you go. But guess what they were doing? They were being good stewards to what had been entrusted to them. A lot of times, God asks us to do things and gives us a word, gives us a task, gives us a job. And we do it or don't but we always doing it kind of looking over our shoulder like is anybody seeing me doing this (laughs) 
Has anybody seen my faithfulness? Like, you know, where's my where's my stewardship cheerleaders at? <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Listen, I've done it. We've all been guilty of this. Like sometimes you just want a little bit of honor for what you've been doing. You know what I'm talking about, love. Sometimes you just give and give and give and nobody notices. They're at night. There's nobody even out there but them. And sheep. How much honor are you going to get from a sheep? (laughs) Inconvenient time. Inconvenient place. No recognition, but they were being stewards. And that's when they got a revelation that led them to the presence of the living God. That's when they got their invitation. And I, I, I just I thought about this, and this is just the way my mind works. Yes, I know it's kooky and it's out there, but this is the way my mind works. I'm like, what if there was ten shepherds? And what if two of them said, hey, guys, listen, we have been out here for a while. And it's nighttime. Nobody's going to notice. The sheep are sleeping anyway. or They're doing their sheep thing. Why don't y'all watch the flock and let us go into town? I really need a bath. I could probably use a drink to take the edge off. You know, my cousin lives over here. I could probably use, you know, some family time and a good night's sleep on something other than the hard ground. So why don't y'all eight stay out here and we'll go and then tomorrow we'll come and two more can go. I'm not saying that's what happened. The Bible doesn't say that. But what if it did? And two go into town and leave their stewardship and then the angel appears. And because they were unwilling to endure their responsibility or their assignment because of lack of recognition, inconveniences, lack of comfort, lack of celebration, whatever, they missed the visitation that led to the present. You see that? That's an encouragement. Oh yeah, it's about the sovereignty of God. It's about God accomplishing His purpose and His plan no matter what. Yes, it's about the foundation of our faith. Everything hinges upon the resurrection, or on the incarnation. Everything hinges upon the virgin birth. That's why you don't let anybody take the virgin birth away from Christianity. No. Everything hinges upon this. But in this... We can see one thing very clearly. Mary was faithful and didn't try to force it. She waited. A lot of us try to force it. She waited. And God moved the heavens and the earth to get her where she needed to be. And the shepherds were being faithful to their stewardship, even though nobody was watching, even though it was inconvenient, even though it was uncomfortable. And they got the word. That was the moment that their assignment was waiting for. And they got it. 
in the midst of their stewardship. They trusted it and followed that to the presence and got to see and be one of the only people. We talk about the wise men. The wise men didn't get there till later. That was like two years later. They weren't even in the manger anymore. They were in the house. Wise men got there later. The shepherds are the only ones that we have mentioned outside of Mary and Joseph that get there and see. Because they were faithful in their stewardship. They got to encounter the presence of God. And guess what? Here's what I love. The Bible doesn't say, wow, they went and they had their hype moment and then they went back to the field. Their moment with the presence changed everything. And they went from an inconvenient time and an inconvenient place without recognition to a place to where they were going and they were in everybody's business. They were in everybody's face because it says they go out from there and they tell everybody. Everybody knew the shepherds after that point. Even if they said, well, they're a kook, they're crazy, they're a fanatic, whatever. No, everybody knows now because now they got something to give. See, what happens if we're like Mary or we, we, we're not like Mary and we try to force it or we're not like the shepherds and we leave our assignment and we try to give premature birth to the ministry God's given us, guess what? We don't have anything to give. It's like Braxton Hicks. For those of you who don't know, those are fake labor pains. Hmm. It's like we try to, to falsely manifest and prematurely produce what God isn't ready for us to produce yet. And we ain't got nothing to give. It's all pains and no baby. No, they had to go to the present so they could get the baby so then they had something to share. And they had something to share that few others had any idea about. If you want to get to that place, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, everybody is a minister. We believe in the priesthood of believers. It's not just about vocational ministry. You get paid for it. If that's your motivation, you're in the wrong line. And check your heart. Everybody's a minister. Dollars don't confirm that. Matter of fact, they often deny it. Now that's, a, that's meddling. We ain't going to do that. But everybody's a minister. No matter what. If you're a Christian, you're a minister. If you want to get to the place that few go. I don't know about your prayer life, but I ask God, take me places no one's been. Take me places that few have ever walked. Spiritually, in my mind and in my heart, encounter with you. Treat me like Ezekiel and pick me up by the hair of my head and take me where no one's been before. That's where I want to go. If you want that, it requires being faithful in the small things. Because there's a day going to come and while you're faithful in your assignment, whatever that assignment may be, recognition or not, inconvenient or not, uncomfortable or not, whatever that assignment is, there's going to come a day where God sends some angels to that spot where you're supposed to be. And is He going to find you there being faithful and being a good steward so that He can then tell you what's next? And how to get to that deep place you want to go. So then you actually have something of substance. Or is he going to show up and find your steward. Your stewardship 
your, your responsibility but not find you? That's a challenge to be faithful. To be faithful in the small things, whether people are looking or not, whether it feels good or not. What assignment has God given you? And are you doing it? Because like I said, it changes everything. And it, all that heard the word of the shepherds wondered. They had such an experience that they were able in, to introduce something to the world that the world hadn't seen yet. That's what I want for us. I want this church to introduce something to Cleveland that it hasn't seen yet. Amen. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the word. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the incarnation, for the advent. Thank you, Christ, for coming and taking upon flesh to die in my place. Thank you for changing everything. Lord, it's no longer about what I can do. It's no longer about what I can accomplish. It's no longer about me at all. Now it's about who you are and what you've done and what you want to continue to do. Thank you, Jesus. And God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would move over this congregation in the hearts and minds of every single person here and that you would encourage them to be faithful to the assignment you've given. If they've forgotten, remind them of their assignment. Lord, remind them that you're always watching. You're the one that's in the secret place when no one else can see. And the Word says that if you are in the secret place, that the one who is in the secret place will reward you openly. God, I'm praying for those that go to the secret place, both in prayer and in stewardship and in faithfulness and in obedience, Lord. Those that go to the secret place, I pray that their reward is open and that it does introduce awe and wonder into the society and the community in which they live. That you lead them to an encounter with your presence that few have ever been. That you take them to places that they've never been. I believe that this is possible, God. Lord, I expect great things from this church. Please move the heavens and the earth to bring your word to pass. You've spoken some great words over Cleveland, Tennessee, and you've spoken some great words over this church. Move everything that needs to be moved to bring those to fulfillment. We wait on you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.